Hi, everybody. I'm here today with Compton Rom. Um, haven't seen Compton in a couple of years. Last time was at Gaia. We've had some fabulous conversations about the microbiome and all the microbes and how they operate within our body. But he's taken it a major step further. Um, he's what you would call an anthropological microbiologist, meaning he has studied native cultures and the healthiest cultures in the world and really come down to some real profound truths about it all. So, and it all has to do with the gut. So without further ado, let's go to Compton. Compton, it's so good to see your shiny face again. It's shiny because you walk your talk, you're super healthy, you eat a lot of microbes and stuff we're going to talk about in a minute, right? Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Regina. Like yeah, this is fun because you've really taken it further than last time I saw you. And why don't we just go ahead and launch into the story? Because most people, when I just say this one little thing that's in our first talking point, will say, what? That can't be true. Basically, you're saying here, microbiome studies show that human beings are at most only 10% human. Now, that's shocking. People are going to hear that and say, what's he talking about? So let's dive right into that one first. Right. Well, back in 2002, when they started looking at uh, uh, the number of um, uh, genes that we have and the number of uh, cells that can possibly be produced by these genes, they found out that the human being, the body itself, um, can only produce about 10 trillion living cells. There was only a possibility of 10 trillion cells, but when they counted the number of living cells that actually lived in the human body, there was over like 100 trillion, maybe 110 trillion. So at best, we were 10% human, and they looked at, well, what is the other 90 trillion cells that are living in the human body? And it turns out to be this plethora of tiny organisms, bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungi. They all call it our home, and because they were friendly bacteria, we didn't really realize that they were causing any trouble. And we started to find out then that the majority of the organisms inside the human body are not human. And so what they did is they, they completed the human DNA project, the human genome project, and they said, well, you know, if we're only 10% of ourselves, I bet our DNA is going to prove that we're at least 30 to 50% human DNA. And then when they looked at that and evaluated that, it was even worse. We're only 1% <laughs> human in terms of our DNA. I think that kind of freaks people out, you know, the, the notion of it um, at, you know, at first blush. But the reality is we're a super complex organism, you know, held together by a skin that looks human. But like most of the organisms on our planet, it's, there's such a symbiotic relationship between all of them. And one of the problems with modern culture is that we keep trying to kill all of those uh, organisms that we feel are interfering with our health and well-being without ever stopping to look at the complexity of what's dependent on what for our, our survival and our well-being. And this is something that's such a complex matrix that you've spent so many years of your life looking into how we balance this out and how the body knows how to heal itself. And so let's start looking at some of the cultures that you studied where people traditionally live to be over 100 years old and what you discovered. Yeah, so, you know, back uh, in, in 2000, Dan Buettner started to introduce uh, this concept on National Geographic called Blue Zones. And uh, so I said, well, that's very interesting. You know, Blue Zones are places in the world where people live to over 100 and he characterized these blue zones as 
of having certain characteristics of why people lived to over 100. Um, namely, one of them was the sociological aspects. People were happy, they had a purpose in life, they were very social, you know, they were dependent on their social background for uh, creating happiness. And they also had uh, particular diets, but he never really went into what kind of diets they were. You know, we had the Mediterranean diet. Uh, and these blue zones were, were places in the world where you wouldn't think people lived a long time. Uh, for example, like the most surprising one was actually in California, in Loma Linda, California. Oh, and wait a minute. That's Seventh-day Adventist mostly, right? That's correct. <laughs> they, Interesting. They had spiritual ups. Um, they basically had a lot of spirituality and they had a lot of social connection between each other. And their diets weren't necessarily the best, but uh, they tended to eat organic, believe it or not. Um, but there, there were other blue zones uh, that were in the Costa Rica and the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, which I, I started to visit, um, the Okinawa um, Island in, off of Japan, and uh, Sardinia, uh, places in, in Italy, and, and the most notable one that I went to visit was in Ikaria, Greece, which is now called the Island of Longevity. And, and so I started visiting uh, these places, and, and, I, and I noticed that the people weren't really doing much of anything other than you know, having fun, relaxing, and, and working, and, and, and drinking, and eating a lot of, uh, of their native foods. They didn't eat a lot of processed foods from the Western environment. And, I was going to say, uh, um, just to cut in for a moment here and validate what you're saying, I was I just came back from Sardinia a few weeks, maybe two, three weeks ago now, and I just fell in love with the culture. It reminded me of what we were doing maybe 30, 40 years ago and that people were so connected. Family was so connected. People were out in the piazzas, their little kids, their bouncing balls, chasing each other, riding bikes. The parents were maybe having a glass of wine and whatever it is that they were enjoying for dinner. And, you know, little kids were raised by extended family of aunts and uncles. The point was I didn't see a single cell phone on the table. Nothing, not one. No one was talking on their cell phone or distracted or worried about work at the end of the day. Um, literally just sipping a, maybe a glass of wine or seltzer water or whatnot. And I thought, God, what must it feel like to live like that again? And you're getting ready to tell us the results of living like that. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, you know, even though I consider myself uh, a scientist, I by no means am an expert in longevity. And I consider myself like an explorer in, in exploring longevity. And the thoughts that I have now may not be valid five years from now. So a lot of the things that I'm saying, you know, let's just take it with a grain of salt. But I do have some, some truths that we've been talking about since, we've, since we first started having an interview uh, six years ago that are really profound. And uh, the more I think about it uh, and, and experience it with my family, the more self-evident these truths are. And, and one of the things that I found out uh, with, with these, um, these blue zones, and I've also visited places that are called cold spots. And uh, there's this, there are these groups of scientists that, that measure the amount of disease that are prevalent in a particular society. And 
What's a cold spot? Okay, so a cold spot is an area where there's a very low prevalence of a particular disease. For example, Copper Canyon, Mexico, for some whatever reason, they don't have any incidence of diabetes. Wow. Yeah. And uh, the the Punjab region of um, northern India, because they eat a lot of curry and turmeric, they almost have, they have the lowest incidence of Alzheimer's and and any brain-related diseases, dementia, Alzheimer's, in the world. Uh, In Okinawa, Japan, they have very low incidence of of heart attacks, and they're not very very obese in Okinawa, Japan. Uh, So those are called cold spots. And then, conversely, there are hot spots, you know, places in the world where there's a a high amount of disease. Like New Orleans, Louisiana is a hot spot for cardiovascular disease. In fact, it's the highest uh, prevalence of heart disease and heart attacks in the entire world. You know, interestingly, uh, just a little aside, back when I had my vegetarian cooking show on PBS, virtually every market in the United States picked up that show except New Orleans because it didn't fit their culture, which is very, very rich, very fatty, lots of meats, and I'm not going on, I'm not making a statement one way or another, whether you should be vegan, omnivore or whatnot. I'm just saying that they were very clear it didn't relate to their people. And it's interesting that you're saying this. Yes. So the actual studies of the microbiome, you know, how probiotics came to be known as as very healthy, came from these studies of what was called the metabolome. And what they did was they knew that because of the foods we eat, the bacteria in our gut broke them down into their specific byproducts and metabolites. So the first level wave of bacteria, we have a lot of species of bacteria in our gut. And the food of one bacteria uh, creates waste products, which become the food of the second level of bacteria. We have a, at least 10 levels of bacteria in our gut before the human um, organism actually gets to feed. So when we, when we eat, we actually feed the bacteria first. They're the ones that own the body. And they started to look at the metabolites that were produced by these bacteria, and they found out that the urine metabolites, they started calling it the metabolome because it was the ohm of our metabolites. And they, they looked at the urine metabolites, the metabolome of these different people around the world, and these scientists found out something really cool. They said that just looking at your urine metabolites, i.e. your metabolome, we know where you live. And they found out that, uh, you know, most Americans had a similar metabolome to England because we have the similar diet. But if you were plant-based, you would have a completely different metabolome. So uh, countries where there were very few meat eaters, uh, namely in China, because they were, they were very poor, um, they didn't. Uh, they weren't able to to grow much meat. They ate mostly a plant based diet. They started having a really what's called a really healthy metabolome, and they started looking at uh, the different uh, um, compounds inside their urine that uh, were different from the, the compounds that were from America and England, and they started identifying that these compounds were called small short chain fatty acids, and the short chain fatty acids that were uh, prevalent in people with heart disease were completely different from the short-chain fatty acids from the ones that ate a plant-based diet. But the ones that ate a plant-based diet, these short-chain fatty acids 
turned out to be signal molecules that promoted like weight loss and promoted a healthy cardiovascular signal and things like that. Interesting. Yeah. That explains a lot about people who switch, who are trying to lose weight or, or whether they're going on a new health plan or whatnot and decide to switch to plant-based diets, they seem to lose weight so quickly. And I think it's, you know, it still kind of stuns people as to why that is because they might be eating a lot of food, but uh, nonetheless, the weight seems to drop off. So go into that a little more deeply for people who are, are wondering about that phenomena and curious about it. Well, in actuality, what, what I've come to the conclusion is that um, the gut microbes are very important, that they're so much a part of us that we fail to recognize their needs and we fail to recognize that they're, uh, they're a part of us, just as much a part of us as a human being are. And you know, my conclusion is, is that humans are superorganisms. And if we eat and act like one, it'll make you live longer, healthier, and happier. And what I mean by a superorganism is that we're an ecosystem of diverse organisms living together symbiotically, and we are more than ourselves. Right? If we don't recognize these other organisms, we're going to turn out like, you know, for example, like South Africa had apartheid for the longest time, and they were not healthy as a country because they didn't recognize the 90% of their population. They didn't give them a voice in governance. They didn't give them any voices at all. But once they started to give them a voice, they became healthy as a country. And, and they're still struggling, but they're much healthier as a country now because they started to recognize and give voice to these other members of That's an interesting, an interesting analogy. Let, let's, let's go back to the food platform for a moment. You were talking about England and the United States. So we can talk about like the classic Sunday roast um, in England, where you have your Yorkshire pudding, big hunk of, you know, roast beef, maybe a couple little bits of cooked vegetables in there and some dessert, you know, um, coffee, tea, both of these cultures do that. In our version of it, it might be a quick stop at um, a big, you know, pick up a mix something in the morning for breakfast. What What is that creating by way of these um, waste effects from the bacteria that you're speaking of that make us hang on to weight versus letting it go compared to plants? Well, when you eat plant-based compounds, plants have these uh, compounds that we can't break down, and it's called fiber. And a lot of the meat products that we eat and a lot of the processed food that we eat, like in the 50s, they, they, they made a big thing about digestible fiber, digestible food. You know, it's a complete, it turned out to be the complete opposite of what we really need because we're not paying attention to the superorganism. We're not paying attention to the needs of the gut microbes that need indigestible fiber. And so when you break down this indigestible fiber from plants, it creates these short-chain fatty acids, amongst other things, that uh, uh, regulate um, our weight and regulate our hormones and regulate everything because these microbes are being fed. And, and believe it or not, the reason why uh, the English weren't so obese a hundred years ago versus they're more obese now is because um, of the microbes on the foods, right? The, the microbes on the foods a hundred years ago, we didn't have refrigeration. So the moods, the foods were actually aging and decomposing before we ate them. There were microbes on the foods breaking down those foods. And when they, when they ate the foods, they ate the byproducts of the, 
uh, partially decomposed meats and things like that. But because of pesticides and herbicides and antibiotics and now genetic modification, these foods are not being eaten by the microbes. The microbes don't recognize these foods, right? So when they're eating these foods, like the meats and things like that, they're being, they're being packed in cans that have, um, that have these uh, compounds in it that actually inhibit microbial growth. So the microbes don't have access to them. So when they get into the body, the microbes say, what is this? I can't eat this stuff. They don't get fed. And, and basically, we are starving ourselves because we are not paying attention to the, to the nutritional needs of the superorganism. I mean, that's fascinating. We could go on for quite a bit. I mean, just painting the pictures of what it looks like in our guts that our little companions in there are starving to death when we're feeding them things like processed foods. Um, I guess, wh what are we looking at when we're looking at simple starches, simple carbohydrates, for example? Same thing? Same thing. Yeah, we want to we want to eat as complex a carbohydrate diet as possible, and on top of that, we want to ferment it before we eat it. Yeah. So, uh, for example, when you compost, what happens when you compost? Well, people take waste products and they put it in a bin and they let it sit there and age for like a year, right? Why? Because they found out by just taking that. Uh, those waste products and sticking it in a garden, it doesn't work. It only works if it gets broken down in the compost by all the bacteria and the fungus and, and you get this rich plethora of, of compounds that the, the plants need to actually grow. So, you know, we need to take that composting belief system and bring it to the humans. And that's what fermented foods are all about. So... When the Japanese and the Koreans make kimchi, when the Germans make sauerkraut, when we make kombucha, we're actually eating uh, these breakdown products of, of these microbes, which gives us the food that we need to feed our superorganisms. Interesting. Uh, now, a lot of people, of course, kombucha is a massive trend right now. Um, and, but some people are still afraid of it, thinking, oh, my God, then I have all the sugars. And then aren't I doing something even worse to my gut? So let's just focus on kombucha for a moment, because it does require sugars for the fermentation process. What's actually going on with it? And should people be nervous about it just because it has a few carbs? Mm, I would say no. You know, most of the, the original kombuchas that were made were not uh, all the sugars were already eaten up. I mean, I was drinking kombucha in the 90s, and it didn't taste that good because I, I wasn't a big a fan of, of the teas, and, and it wasn't carbonated back then. And now they are artificially carbonate kombuchas, and, they, and the types of sugars you use for kombuchas uh, actually make a big difference. You know, if, if you use sugars like honey yes. as breakdown products that are very healthy for you, and and it turns out that that kind of kombucha is called a jun. Jun, yeah, it's delicious too. So and it, and it creates a different flavor. But if you use a kombucha and you use regular table sugar that uh, was grown from a GMO crop, it'll come out with a different flavor profile, a much sweeter flavor profile than, for example, uh, a less refined sugar. Like if you use a sucanat or molasses, you know, it'll come up with a different flavor pro profile. But... As you know, molasses has a lot of uh, antioxidants, anthocyanins, and a lot of minerals in it. So the type of sugar that you use in a kombucha uh, gives uh, a different mineral composition than, than a more refined sugar. So you actually want to use a kombucha with, with less sugar, but 
most people are really addicted to sugars because your microbes are addicted to sugars. Yeah. Okay. So that's another thing we need to talk about is people addicted to sugar because their microbes are addicted to sugar. How do you break that cycle? And to what extent do you really need to break that cycle? Well, we definitely have to break the cycle of, of sugar consumption because the microbes that are addicted to sugar are actually, a lot of them are fungus. Uh, candida is probably the well best known fungus that's uh, addicted to sugar. And once we, once we eat sugar, more of this candida starts to show up in our body. And of course, the microbes have tremendous amount of influence to our cravings. And if you can start uh, cleansing yourself and, and doing, uh, creating a cycle of cleansing and regenerating to get rid of the candida and populate yourself with a really good uh, probiotic, um, then it would, it would be great. I mean, uh, you know, we've been making a probiotic called ProAlive at Ascended Health that uh, we eliminate all the sugars and we actually use microbes that uh, get you to crave away against sugars. And we're, we're finding that, you know, six months using this product, uh, these, these sugar cravings go away. So it definitely um, shows that if you can start eating foods that are more sour and less sugary, you can start getting your cravings away from sugar very quickly within two to three weeks. Uh, yeah, that's excellent. Now, you brought up the notion of fermented foods. Let's talk about fermented foods a little bit. I mean, most people think of like pickle, pickled carrots and onions and sauerkraut and uh, now a little kombucha, and that tends to be the end of uh, the line of thought there. Let's talk about fermented foods, the range of them, what you do in your own home with fermented foods. Then we're going to go on to a really interesting uh, part of the story that you're going to share with us regarding fermenting some other things. Yes. Well, with, with fermented foods, most people are fermenting foods and not really looking at the microbes that are being fermented. And what we've done is we went all over the world and looked at the fermented foods, at the different uh, longevity zones, what I call it, and, and I found out that the microbes that they're using to ferment, even though they're not consciously looking at the microbes, they're very different from the microbes that people are fermenting foods here with. Like How so? Well, the, the surface microbes in, in Japan, in, in the kimchi and, and the different foods that they're fermenting, they're, they're very different from the surface microbes that they're using here. And most of the people, when they're fermenting foods with the cabbage here, they're fermenting with the endogenous cabbage, uh, the endogenous microbes that are on the surface of the cabbage. And they, they may not necessarily be beneficial for you. How do you know what, what is and what isn't? Just through research. Yeah. Most of, uh, we started researching these microbes and we started uh, isolating the different microbes on the surface of the cabbages in the United States. And we found out that they're, they were neither beneficial or harmful to the human being. They were called commensal bacteria. So I started saying, well, you know, if we have the opportunity to, to, to use a microbe that's beneficial for us, like, for example, let's use a microbe that eliminates sugar cravings. And, and one of these microbes is Saccharomyces boulardii, right? So most of the microbes that are used to ferment beer is called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But a slight variation that's found on the skins of mangosteen in Thailand are known to combat candida. So you can actually just 
buy Saccharomyces boulardii at Whole Foods or any health food store and, uh, and make a sauerkraut from this. But what you need to do is you need to kill off and sterilize the sauerkraut that you make from your previous microbes. How do you do that? Use it by quickly boiling. So in, in culinary uses, it's called blanching. So you, yes. you boil water and, and it becomes really boiled and it's, it's super hot, like 180 degrees. And then, you know, all your cut up veggies, you just stick them in there and then you drain it and you stick them in there for like 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. So now it's literally completely sterile. Uh, alternatively, you can use ozonated water. So you can create like a water ozonator and you can ozonate your water and you can... Uh, uh, you can sterilize your, your things that way. And, and basically at home, when we get our fruits and veggies, uh, we get them from the farmer's market, we quickly put them in water and we have a water ozonator and we ozonate it that way. So we kill off other surface microbes. And that's a good way of, of you know, making sure that your almonds, when you make almond milks, you're not going to get alpha toxin poisoning and, and uh, your strawberries last for three, four weeks. When you do this, you kill off all your surface microbes. So you, you actually preserve things that way. Uh, that, I, mean, I find this fascinating. And if you would take the time for a moment to just spell the name of those microbes that you said you can pick up even at Whole Foods that people can use when they're fermenting their own food once they've essentially cleansed, cleansed the exterior microbes uh, off their food. What is the name of it again? How do you spell that? Saccharomyces boulardii. And Saccharomyces, they don't usually spell out, uh, but uh, Saccharo means sugar, and it's spelled S-A-C-C-H-A-R-O, Myces, M-Y-C-E-S. I'm not great at spelling. Like That's that. okay. You'll get us in the ballpark. We can Google the rest. <laughs> the, uh, the rest of the word is called boulardii, and it's spelled B O. U L A R I I. Interesting. Okay. Named after this guy, Dr. Bulardi, that discovered it in Thailand off of the mango skin. So when you discover a, a novel microbe, they will give you a name. And this guy's last name was Bulardi. So they gave you this name, Bulardi I. Too bad it wasn't Smith or Jones, right? <laughs> yeah, or Meredith. Or Meredith, right? Or Rom. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's why you're microbing. <laughs> well, you you just uh, you know you would blanch your microbes. You can actually make a, a delicious mango slurry. And this is the first food that we we fed our child. Or you know we we took uh, you could take mangoes, apricots, apples, or whatever, and you blanch them and you mix them up in a sauce, and then you put like a capsule of Saccharomyces boulardii in there. Or you uh, better yet, I tell our users to take our pro-life and just take, take our pro-life and put a dropper full of the Ascended Health pro-life inside your mixture and boom, you get like this rich culture of 19 different beneficial bacteria that I've collected from longevity zones around the world. And it does wonders, not just for your, you, your kids, but for your dogs and cats, for your pets. They love it. Sounds like your daughter's nearby. <laughs> Yeah, they're building next door. Oh. <laughs> I actually asked them to stop, but you know, 
That's okay. We can still hear you. Well, uh, that's really very useful, very helpful information. Um, let's talk also about some of the herbs and things that you've been playing with and doing some fermentation processes on that could end up being some of these really uh, super complex foods that our bodies need. Yeah. So basically, uh, based on the fact that we're a super organism, uh, I, I've been studying these uh, tribes around the world that are known as microbiome diverse tribes. And they're usually hunter gatherers. Uh, there's, there's a hunter gatherer tribe in, in South Africa called the Sen. Uh, there's, there's another one in, in Tanzania. There's another one. There's a whole bunch of them in South America. When they, they studied their gut microbes, they're, they're very diverse in their uh, microbiome, and they turn out to be so diverse that they don't have cancers, they don't have diabetes, they don't have these diseases that we normally associate with the, with the typical Western diet. Right. But again, they don't live a long time. They, they live maybe 40 to 50 years old, mm -hmm. but they live, a, they live a healthy lifestyle, and they're always moving, they're always exercising, but they're using these herbs that... Um, they're finding out to trigger what I, what I call keystone microbes in the gut. And, and some of these, these herbs have their bitter herbs uh, and they're these plants that are only grown in these areas of the world where these hunter-gatherers actually wildcraft these herbs. So, you know, we're trying to create relationships with these tribes to help them out in, in a financial way to kind of like monetize the land so the land doesn't get uh, taken over by developers and, and by uh, miners now in, in the case of these tribes in the Peru, like the Hunakuans and the Yanomami tribes. Um, they've got these specific herbs that they, they eat all the time and it creates like diverse microbiome. And it, it goes into uh, another clue as to why the superorganism that we have is a self-regulating being. You know, they believe that the human being has the ability to self-regulate. They don't believe in modern medicine and modern man being able to say, you know, you need this and you need that. They just say, let the microbes do it. And mm -hmm. they say, let us eat the right plants to feed our superorganism and the body will self-heal. And that's what happens. So the keystone microbes is another clue is that our body is self-regulating and can heal themselves. And if we find the foods and the bitter herbs to feed these keystone microbes, our body starts to self-heal, starts to lose weight, and our skin glows, our liver starts to regenerate. It's amazing. So, you know, I've been on, on a mission to, to literally find out what these different keystone microbes like to eat and, and what they gather and the, the clues in these hunter-gatherer tribes around the world. So is this something that you're going to be able to do by way of... Um creating product lines that are available to the public through these fermented herbs? We are. And I come up with a term, like in order to uh, create product lines, I want to be able to measure, you know, what kind of compounds are being produced by these different fermentations. First of all, when I'm, when I'm creating a fermentation, we're, we're actually doing these intentional fermentations but we're also replicating the fermentation within the human gut, i.e., you know, we're, we're replicating the pH, the oxygen, and the temperature that's in our mouths and our stomachs 
our small intestine, our large intestine, and our colon, and we're doing these cascading fermentations. And we're doing with the, 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 the different microbes that are responsible uh, for those fermentations. So I'm calling it a super fermentation. And, and literally, it's kind of like a composting of food before we eat it. And what happens is, is when I'm using these microbes that I find all over the world and say, okay, these microbes are usually found in the mouth, in the oral cavity. And these are microbes are found in the small intestine. And these are anaerobic microbes that we found in the large intestine. Well, we have different vats for those. And once we do like this super fermentation, we're trying to characterize the different small molecules that are responsible for healing the body. And these small molecules that are responsible for healing the body actually make the body live longer. So they're responsible for longevity. And I've come up with a term that I spoke of in our last um, interview that uh, these little molecules that promote longevity are called longevikines and longevikins. So that's what we're trying to characterize. Like, you know, can we find foods and can I start to teach people how to create super fermented foods that produce these longevikins? So stay tuned. Absolutely. Now, one thing... um People hear all this and get excited and think, yay, I want to buy the product and I can keep it, you know, eating my burgers and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the point is, if you're, if you're going to continue the exact same diet you've been in terms of the Western classic diet, which is really a simple carb rich, for example, then how do those uh, super fermented products play in with that? I mean, do they do that work for you or do you really have to take it upon yourself to make some changes within and use these as augmentation? Well, the answer is both. You know, we always have to make some changes. You know, the biggest change is, is, is the belief system that our body is self-healing. It is a self-regulatory change. That we can't give our power away to the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry. That we have to take the power amongst ourselves. That no matter where you are, that your body is always healing. Your body doesn't suddenly decide to stop and stop healing just because you take this drug or that pharmaceutical or that chemical. No, your body's always trying to heal, right? So it's a health, it's a self-regulatory device. And you have to decide, you know that movie Shawshank Redemption where Robbins is sitting there uh, and and, uh, Morgan Freeman is looking at him and he's like, what's going through your mind? And that's when he decided to escape the prison. Right? And he's like, I, I have to paraphrase it, but he basically said, you know, a man's got to decide to actually start living or you get busy dying. Yeah. That's what we have to change. We have to change our belief system. And then, you know, another thing I found out with these longevity zones, that these people have a very deep connection to nature and the universe to feed and heal like the different energy bodies. Like we just don't have this physical energy body to feed. We have to feed at least four energy bodies. And I'm not saying that these are all the energy bodies, but at the very least, we have an emotional energy body, we have a mental energy body, and we have a spiritual energy body, and we have a physical energy body. So we've got four energy bodies to feed. So when you went to Sardinia, these people were hanging around and they're, they're feeling happy, you know. They're feeding their mental, emotional, and, and spiritual energy bodies. And I'm telling you, the microbes within us, the superorganism that we within us, they've got emotional needs too. They've got spiritual needs too. 
you know? And when we do these super fermentations, we're feeding them these emotional factors and these mental factors. They need to relax just as much as we need to relax and they need comfort food too. <laughs> I love it. I love it. A completely different way of looking at it. And culturally, these, these cold zones and blue spots, blue zones and, and cold spots and so forth, um, did they all have in common that they generally shunned modern medicine in favor of natural healing just through their daily lives? Was, was that part of it? No, it's not part of it at all. In fact, a lot of the, the ones that were creating the fermented foods, the ones that I met in Ikaria were actually, he was like the chief pharmacist of the entire island. Oh my God. <laughs> He's the one doling out like all the medicines and things like that. But the thing is, is that they embraced modern medicine, but they just knew that modern medicine wasn't the be all to end all. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, honestly, we need antibiotics and and sometimes we need vaccines and sometimes we need all this, you know, all this new knowledge, but we have to just take it into account and we just have to take it into the breadth of knowledge, but not forget that nature has that knowledge too. You know, unfortunately with modern medicine, they don't take into account all the natural ways of healing because there's no money in it. True. Yeah. So, but we, we have our innate knowledge and these, these cultures, they just haven't forgotten that knowledge. And truth be told, when, you know, you talk to these people, hey, is modern medicine going to save you? They say, no, not at all. I've, I've taken all these medicines and a lot of them, they just forget these medicines and they allow their bodies to heal themselves if they just relax and, and they start to eat uh, the foods that they know are, are going to feed their superorganisms. I love the story. Now, Compton, uh, there are some, some other areas that get a little more complex uh, that we can get into, but I'm going to be meeting up with you in a couple months at Gaia, and there we have a one-hour interview ahead of us, and what I thought I would do is leave everybody with a lot of this really practical information, again, getting the name from you of the um, product that you have that helps introduce these super healthy microorganisms that help reduce sugar cravings. We want to hear that one again. And then um, pick up the rest of the story when we get to Gaim and have another hour to talk about it. How's that sound to you? Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I want, I want to talk about creating a cycle of cleanse and regeneration. Number one, just changing our belief system. Yes. A cycle of cleanse and regenerating. You know, we'll get into that in the Gaia interview deeply. We'll go into that cleansing cycle. Right. Uh, right here now, what, what is the name of that product again that you carry? It's called ProLive for uh, boosting your immune system. And then there's another product called Active Detox, which actively detoxes your liver and kidneys of, of the toxins. And you can buy them together as a set. And it starts your cycle of cleansing and regenerating inside your body. So you cleanse away your cravings, and you regenerate new cravings. Sounds wonderful. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will be checking it out when we uh, when they finish watching this. And uh, meanwhile, I'm looking forward to the rest of the conversation, getting into the more of the complex story, more complexities of the story uh, about cleansing and rebuilding. But uh, you've given us a lot to work with, even just today. And I think it's I love what you had to say about how we can uh, cleanse off the unhealthy microbes from our food so easily and then add in the good ones and really start changing the way our, our uh, microbes in our body are responding, make our microbes happy. Uh, because so many people here have... Just yeah. knowing that we're a superorganism, yeah. 
we've got more than ourselves to think about. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a beautiful story. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing you again. Uh, it's been a couple of years. I will see you in Boulder uh, in a couple months time. And meanwhile, have a great rest of your summer and Compton. Thank you so much for taking time to share this with us today. And I, I wish you luck on your journey with your um, super fermented herbs. And I'm, I'm anxious to see. What yeah. So uh, I'll be updating people on what we find and how we can actually measure foods as to their longevity and content. I love it. Well, until later, thank you so much, Compton, for your time. And hopefully those guys can get back to their construction and banging on the walls next door. <laughs> that wasn't too bothersome. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Again, everybody, you can go to ascendedhealth.com and check out all of the products that he's already developed. And also uh, keep uh, an eye on what's coming up. As he said, he'll keep you updated on what he's finding in some of these uh, super fermented herbs in the future. So until next time, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com.